drinking makes me feel good, and drinking a lot makes me feel great because I don't have to deal with anything else going on in my life. I can just focus on I am going to get blacked out as much as I can. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today, I'm with my buddy, Tyler Owen, and we've become friends over the last three or four months. I love the fact that you are in long-term recovery, first of all, but you also celebrate it, and we're going to get into to how well you do that and openly you do that. But I just first want to just thank you for being here. You're very welcome. So once you got into your recovery, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been out in front of this issue very transparent with your story, really, really from the get-go. And what, what made you want to go that route? So it's, my sobriety date is March 23rd, 2013. And I guess being public and being a, a voice for people and a voice against stigma of addiction, it's really about what was going on in 2012, 2013, my rock bottom period going into my uh, start of my recovery what did we start seeing in 2012 and 2013 but a horrific but still under the cover rise in heroin use and overdoses and the issues related to that and nobody was talking about it yet but because of where I found myself in that rock bottom period I was associating with people that oh you're using heroin I hadn't heard of that before I mean, I knew what heroin was, but I didn't know people in my social circle that, oh, hey, that's a thing we do now. Okay. And fortunately for me, I never got involved in any of that. My recovery coincided as that continued to explode. And now you can't go 15 minutes without listening to someone in authority talk about the opioid crisis. No one talking about it yet. And so I'm going through my recovery journey. Uh, first three months, complete blur, uh, just focused on myself. And finally, I admit after a lot of reflection that I was an alcoholic. And that's when I sort of took off with, I'm going to be public about this because I want to talk to people about it. That's the way I want to fight this is talking with people and being open about it. And it still amazes me to this day the amount of people I know that are in recovery that have years and years of sobriety and you never knew it and they'll talk with you for hours and hours at end on it. But I was starting to have those types of experiences about three or four months in, coincided with my love of of government, local government. I wanted to get back in and help and I got attached to a campaign of a uh, – individual Kevin Sell running for judge executive in the uh, 2014 Republican primary. And he shared my concern that, hey, (laughs) these numbers are spiking. We are seeing more overdoses. We are seeing more people use a variety of drugs that just hasn't happened in a long time. We got to do something about this. And that started, one, me being public about my addiction, and two, 
my emergence into local politics. Which we'll get into. As is customary on this show, can you go back and tether your way through your the dark times and, and where you are now for us? And I think that we talk about common, uncommon parts of a, of a story. There's things that I think we all share. For me, I think 16 is really a little bit later in life. I've known plenty of alcoholics that have not started drinking till after 21. I've known a lot that start like at 11 or 10 and it's, it's crazy, but I started at 16 and probably should have known right off the get go that, uh, it was going to be rough because I dive into everything a thousand percent. And when I started drinking as a sophomore in high school, it was like, Oh, this is cool. We're going to do as much of this as possible. And it, really manifested itself pretty nastily um, when I was a senior in high school, when we talk about staying out, staying up until four in the morning on a school night and drinking and being hung over at school the next day and then going into freshman year of college. And this also, uh, my senior year, November, my senior year of high school, my parents separated November of my freshman year of college, one year apart, they officially divorced. And so you're a 18, 19 year old kid graduating high school, going into college, um, going through a very rough transition in your family life. And it's like, drinking makes me feel good. And drinking a lot makes me feel great because I don't have to deal with anything else going on in my life. I can just focus on, I am going to get blacked out as much as I can. Did that have, I mean, it sounds like it had a profound effect, the separation and divorce on you at that, you know, 18, 19. Yeah, I think, and I think for any, and and probably was rougher on my brother and sister, they're younger than me. They had to deal with it uh, full blast. And I guess that was just a, it was weird for me also in that transition of going from high school to college and the transition from having a two-parent household to two separated parents. It's like, that's a lot to process mm-hmm. in a difficult transitional time for anybody. And it, it definitely put me in a headspace where I wanted to separate myself from reality as much as possible, no doubt. After high school into college, how did that, at that transitional period, where did things go? Well, as more than one person would say, Lexington, Kentucky is a heck of a place to uh, carry on an active addiction, and it was. And I went to UK, and how I got out of there with a 3.4 GPA and honors, uh, I'll never really know. But That's uh, pretty impressive, dude. Thank you. <laughs> Especially when- I was more along the lines of you know the 2.6-ish, uh, completely uh, uninterested. But 3.4, man, that's- and, and People there were never know. 8 a.m. classes that I don't know if they knew who I was, and I got A's, and I, I don't even remember going to those. Um, <laughs> but it was it was full tilt um, in college. Uh, it was just it, so much of it was a blur how I functioned down there because it was like you're talking Monday night. I know a bar that has $1 beers. Tuesday night, uh, it's pitcher night. Wednesday night is karaoke night at Saddle Ridge, and we sure are going to stay up till 3 or 4 for that. And then Thirsty Thursday, and it's like everything revolved around drinking. And I know so much of college is that. 
And I guess that that hindered me. I know it hinders a lot of people from separating out. Are you drinking like a college kid or are you drinking like an alcoholic? Because you can look around at the rest of your people and say, I'm drinking just like they are. We're all, we're all just all torn up. And the blinders completely on of just like, just the way we all drink. But when I was, my budget revolved around drinking. My schedule revolved around drinking. Um, I had to make sure that I kept my appearances up. I couldn't be that hungover or still drunk from the night before when I went back to see my family. Um, that was looking back now, looking back even in that first, when I admitted I was an alcoholic, it was things like that, that I could look back on and say, man, I was managing my lifestyle with the sole purpose of being drunk as much as I could. Did you think during that time, because like you said, the college experience, if you're social, is a lot of binge drinking and partying and, and even knowing the schedule day by day, you know, what bar has what, did you think at any time that things were getting out of hand or you might have a problem or was it just rationalizing that I'm just one of the crew? First time I ever went to see a therapist, I actually was a senior in high school. I had uh, gotten popped for uh, public intoxication, um, and I knew I had an issue then. And, I, and throughout all of this time leading up to when I finally quit, I always knew I had an issue. I always knew that I abused alcohol, that I had, that I went full tilt when it came to it. But I thought all kids were. I mm -hmm. thought all college kids. I mean, you label me with an alcohol abuse problem. Heck, all of my friends could be. I remember that distinctly. I'm like, you could label all of my friends with an alcohol abuse problem. It's not that big of a deal. So I knew I had issues. I knew I had my junior year. I got arrested, uh, another public intoxication. I had a few of those. Um and you got to reckon, I, I, I recognize somewhat at that time, I'm like, I can't behave this way. I can still drink, but I can't behave this way. I can't get caught. I can't get in trouble. And I kept getting in trouble. And it, it just, I always knew there were issues, but I never fully addressed what it was until the end, until I actually started my recovery. Out of college. Tell us about that. Where did, where did things go? Did, did it, was it continuing to escalate and as far as understanding more of what might be going on, how did you come to terms with that? Well, it was all, it was always a full escalation. It just got worse and worse. It wasn't like a peak and valley. And I would, the only time there would be some slowdown is I would, I would try to hinder my drinking. I would say, okay, I'm going to stop drinking for right now. And I'd go two weeks and I'd start three or four beers and the next night it'd be six or seven, then it'd be shots. And I'd always try and set myself bars and limits of I can't do liquor or I can't do dark liquor or I can't I can't mix or it and I'd always set myself these restrictions and everyone I broke them all down. And I I thought at the time I'm like, I'm still drinking like I'm in college, but I'm not in college anymore. And that's having serious repercussions for my professional life or my personal life. And it's like, this is, I got to keep trying these things. And uh, that leads up to, I graduated college, May, 2011. 
And my DUI was December 23rd, uh, 2012. And I had been going through all that period of time of trying to control and failing to control my drinking. And it led up to that point. And of course, I mean, you don't get a DUI the first time you drink and drive. I had done that plenty of times. Um, and it was just part of it. And it got popped right before Christmas. And I went through another period of, I'm not going to drink. And I went to these classes, these court-mandated classes. I did everything. And that's, again, the restrictions. Every restriction, I could feel myself sliding every time I set myself up a, a, a step to make. I slipped right past it every time until I was right back where I was. And there was actually an occasion that I uh, drank and drive one more time between my DUI and my sentence, my uh, actual guilty plea. And that's insane to think about, but that was the total slide. It's like I landed up right back where I was. That nothing I did helped. Um, so we're up to early March of 2013 and I go down and visit some of my friends in Lexington and I have one last, well, turn out to be one last final blowout in Lexington, wake up in the morning, Sunday morning, and uh, we go to the bar again at 11 in the morning to continue to uh, keep the party going. And uh, at no point that morning or what turned into that afternoon and evening do I remember consciously making the decision to keep drinking? There was no longer any control once I started on my part to stop. And realizing that later on was one of the scariest things ever, that it was at that point completely out of my control. And uh, that was the last time I drank in Kentucky. I ended up in the hospital after falling down and hitting my head on the uh, sidewalk and uh, two weeks later, I went to a destination wedding in Hilton Head, South Carolina, drank my last rum and Coke at the bar uh, at the hotel, and woke up the next morning, drove home, surrendered my license from my DUI on the, the 27th, and realized On that your own accord? It, that was part, part of, of the, the deal. Part of the deal was okay. I had to surrender my license on the 27th, and- uh, Surrendered that, knew that without even that thin of a membrane to hold me back, that I would drink myself until I was dead. And it was purely out of safety that I stopped drinking at that point. And like I said, I, I walked a lot during that time period. I did a lot of podcast music, immersed myself in uh, isolation and thought. And... Uh, when people ask me, oh, you're not drinking, are you an alcoholic? I would tell them, absolutely not. I'm just, I have to do this. And um, after that probably three-month time period, I, uh, I'm like, looked back at all of my body work and said, nope, you're an alcoholic and you're going to have to deal with this as being an alcoholic. And I've never looked back. That's awesome. So into your recovery, coaching sports, has been a big part of your, I don't know about recovery, but your life. How did you get into it? I was the Newport Central Catholic 
basketball manager. I, my gym teacher was Grant Brandon, and he was the JV basketball coach. My, it, my freshman year, he was my gym teacher, and he got me set up. We got along great. My favorite teacher, and he got me on as the manager for the basketball team, and I spent a lot of time with the coaches and learning the game, and that's my mind is analytics and studying all that. Uh, when I went down to U.K., I got hooked up with uh, Damon Kelly at Lafayette, and I spent two years at Lafayette, two years at West Jasmine, both with uh, with my friend Damon. And when I came home, it, I mean, we talk about that transition. Then if we what we just talked about about college to out of college was starting to get the really, really bad parts of uh, of my drinking. It had it, already been there and already manifested some of itself in coaching where. I would come into practices or games hungover, thankfully never drunk, but hungover and reeking like alcohol. And um, so my last two years of drinking, no one would hire me. Um, and that was a a very low point where it was like, man, it's just you, lo- you love this thing and you lost it. And Why would nobody hire you? Was it because my, my, you were open my, about it? No, no. When I was, this is when I was still drinking. No one would hire me because my record. I had PIs, and I got the DUI. But even before the DUI, I got I had the PIs, and I just had my record was already. You got a twenty-two-year-old kid with an alcohol record that's starting to stack up. It's like no one wanted to touch. They saw the trend. Got it. And um, so, and then that was the weird part, man. That those two dark years, end of college leading up to the time after college, um, why stop? Why work on getting better? Because you've already destroyed your life, your livelihood, your future to a point where it's unrecoverable. Why would I want to work in a positive manner where there's just nowhere to go? I'm done. I'm, I'm at a floor and I can't get up off of it. And that was my attitude is I can't fix this. Why should I care? I'm going to get drunk. And I'll tell you that when I, it was crazy after I quit and I started a work recovery, how quickly everything reversed itself, especially starting with basketball where my, and luckily I had an athletic director at the school that hired me was a um, family member of a recovering alcoholic. And she's like, I get it. I understand we're going to take, we're going to work with you and we're going to take this chance and you're going to be our freshman coach. And that started my journey back into coaching as someone who understood, took the risk on, on me about. What a blessing. Seven, seven months into, into my recovery. And uh, it was incredible and it changed everything. Um, That outlet that I've had. And I'll tell you, man, the best part in terms of coaching and having this addiction and having the recovery journey is being able to be open and public with kids that need it. I'll, I'll tell you, I spent two years uh, working around the kids at Ludlow, one year with uh, basketball, two years with uh, helping my buddy out with baseball, and being able to talk to those kids in a time where the heroin addiction is just taking a lot of their loved ones and sometimes some of them and and. Addiction is just 
sometimes a way of life in communities like that and being able to talk to them. It was incredible. I loved it. Um, big part of both the lead up and the, uh, the way back. And you speak, do you still speak to like organized groups of, of kids in a, you know, I've done from time to time. I wouldn't say it's still, and I'd never say it would be regular, but if anyone ever asked me, I'm there. Um, I've got plenty of friends in education. I'm there. I've done it before. I'll do it again. Um, but a lot of it, man, as you know, sometimes the most helpful conversations are just the informal one-on-ones or the informal group conversations. And that's when you can, you can strike a lot of people where they live. <laughs> Definitely. You just got engaged. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, some people that get into relationships or go down a road of, of meeting someone choose not to disclose if they have, you know, quote unquote, skeletons in their closet, like alcohol use or you know, a, a history of drug addiction. How did you handle that situation? Every relationship I've had since I've been sober, I have made it a distinct point to make it be known very early on. Like even before I'm dating someone, just casually talking to someone, you're going to know I'm an alcoholic because if you don't know that, we're going to have issues because I'm going to need you to work with me on this. And uh, if that's a problem for you, then you, you don't really need to be a part of my life. So I have been open and honest with that aspect, um, even in that perspective of dating. And uh, when I told my fiance, now fiance, that I was an alcoholic, I, she now tells me that her initial reaction was, oh, he, he's not an alcoholic. He just liked to drink heavy and had to quit. And then the more she heard about <laughs> the stuff I actually did, the more she said, oh, yeah, okay. Maybe you are. <laughs> okay, now I get it. <laughs> And she and she's terrific, so wonderful. Understands as much as she can um, what I'm going through, and that sometimes I'm going to be difficult. Sometimes I'm going to need to do my own thing, um, just because I've got I got that cloud that's just always hovering over me that I've got to be cognizant about. And there's things that there's things I have to do and ways I'm going to act that aren't necessarily going to be easy to deal with. <laughs> Moments of selfishness and, and just moodiness. Yeah. yeah, that's the big one is just like, I mean, for me, I think for a lot of us, you drank to cope with the real world and all the, the hard things the real world dishes us. And it was like, I have a raincoat. My raincoat of alcohol will surround me and protect me from this storm. And then you hand in your raincoat and you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And now, hey, here it is. Bring it on. Now I have to find a way to deal with all this stuff. And and we still do. We know that. We know that we have to process things carefully and in our own way, or we're going to have trouble. Six years, is that what you said? Yep. Sobriety. So people have to understand this is forever. And forever is a long time. I was talking to uh, uh, somebody yesterday, and, and he said that to me. Forever is a long time. So I still get, you know, I'm three and a half years in, really irritable really difficult and my wife struggles with it and it's hard for them to understand sometimes because you get removed you're three years in four years in five years in it's like well this should be getting easier don't be such a dick but we have moments where we fall back into the logic of poor me or i'm going to be you know i have a little tantrum but it's hard 
that's why it's every we got to grind every day to keep ourselves in a spot where we try and do the best we can some of that stuff's hardwired man it's hardwired into our brain of how we used to be and we did it for so long and we've got attitude adjustments that happen every day but it comes out sometimes and it may be ugly when it does so i was listening um Michael J. Fox has uh, Parkinson's and has been uh, a vocal advocate of Parkinson's uh, research uh, since he's been diagnosed. I uh, listened to him talk and and alcohol. It did. Oh, and he talks about how yeah. much he drank. Yeah, when he was Can you in imagine his facing Park- a diagnosis like that, man. And you hear a lot about that about mm-hmm. uh, severe diagnosis really uh, flaming the fire of sure. of addiction. But he talked about. Uh, mind versus brain and for him it's parkinson's is literally dissolving his brain and he's got to have his mind win out over his brain to keep his his functions going and i think i mean it speaks a lot to us too is we've got our mind and we've got our brain and our brain is wired with all these addictive qualities to it and then our mind our consciousness is like no that's not what we're going to do we're going to do this and we've got a battle that that what we think against how our brain is actually hardwired. And, and, and it is a daily momentary struggle that we've got a mind over brain. And, and coping skills, which we learn, but they can be out the window in, in a second. And it's a scary thing. It's yeah. a, it, it, we build, we take all this time building this structure to guard us from challenges from stress from old triggers from whatever it is that may threaten our sobriety um we build up these structures these mechanisms uh routines and at the end of the day all of all, they're all not invincible i mean we we we're still human it's not like it's not like we're impermeable to failure it, and it's there uh but you do the best you can, and it really, as cliche as it is, I can't think about forever is a long time. I got I still, six years in, it's just one day. Tomorrow will be another, and we'll deal with that then. Um, and there have been times, man, where I have been so stressed out or so upset that I have put a uh, timer on my phone to midnight and said, I just have to get to then. And it's another day, and I'll be fine. And it is, because it's just one day. That's a great way to do it. It's it's hard to rein that in. And I had a, a period of complete serenity where I, th- those are the cliches you hear step by step, day by day, but it really works. But there's so much minutia in the world that it's hard to whittle it down and, and stay focused. And my addictive mind is still there. And my struggle right now is food. Like last night, I ate an entire bag of chocolate chips. Didn't even think about it, but I stared at it. And said, okay, if I crack that thing open, you know, I'm not going to, it's like alcohol. I'm not going to have a little dish of chocolate chips and cherish the taste. I mean, I went nuts on this thing. So I still have to get control of that kind of stuff. Now I'm out, not out drinking and snorting cocaine, which is good, but it still comes out. And when it, when you unleash it and you have that half a second of weakness, if you want to call it that, I mean, it's zero to a thousand in a heartbeat. And my, my struggle right now is food. My addictive brain is is still tuned in when I let it. And that's why, again, this is forever. And there's the devil on the shoulder, which is addiction. 
waiting for you to have that nanosecond of a weakness because it, it is cunning, baffling, powerful. It's waiting to bring you down. So yeah, it's a grind every day, man. Let's talk about politics. Very big in your life, very active in our community, and we'll talk a little bit more pointed about that. But what got you interested in politics locally or otherwise? So I've always been a history, especially American history, American government nerd. Uh, it's always been part of me. Uh, like I said, when I first got sober, uh, started to see the numbers. that And already, I mean, personally, I found people that uh, I knew people that had overdosed and passed away. And you started to see that. You started to see it more and more and more and more. And it's like, this is not going anywhere. And no one is talking about it yet. And I've met Kevin Sell, who's running for judge executive, and he wanted to talk about it. And I'm like, good, let's go, let's go get this. And it went from that campaign to, and then I started to realize, and other people started to realize, pretty good at what I do in terms of walking the streets, hitting doors, talking to people, getting the message out, formulating message. Um, I worked on another campaign, and then another campaign, and then another campaign, and always with the forethought of we got to continue to not now not just talk about it but do something about it and not just heroin but if it because you are ignorant and blind to the issue at large if you think this is just heroin because you know what happens heroin goes away let's go arrest all the drug dealers take all the heroin off the street guess what happens Something else comes, it'll be something else. And it'll be, the scary thing is, it might be something that's less, has that less gravitas as heroin does because heroin kills so easily that that's why everyone talks about it. What if it's something, right now we're seeing it, man. We're seeing what's taking its place is, is synthetic meth. Right. And it doesn't kill like that. People don't talk about it. And again, we have to go through this labeling crisis of, Certain people do meth, just like the way we had to go back, that we still do in a lot of ways. Certain people do heroin. Certain people binge drink. Certain people become alcoholics. Certain people become potheads. It's only certain people. And it was spreading that message against those thoughts that got me into working on these local campaigns because we we both know a lot of our community is still ignorant to a lot of this stuff, but back then, just... Four or five years ago, it was it was much more. I mean, we had to fight for every word we got to try and uh, get this issue press. And uh, I ran for county commissioner in 2018, and I'm a Republican, and I try and stay toward more logical, centrist look at things about not even to get into that. But I say that to say I want to be a problem-solving person. And I came in 2018 and said – I'm an alcoholic. I know addiction. We have a problem with addiction in our community and our culture, and let's tackle it together. And that was my campaign. And I talked about other things, like I said, problem solving those other issues, of course, but that one was a big one. And I wanted to take that time to push the envelope to say, we're not done. We can never be done. We have to address this as widely as we possibly can. And you made the decision early 2018 
to run for county commissioner? Uh, no, I made the decision long before that. R- I knew, you? I knew for that probably, exact position. Yep, I knew, and uh, I probably knew for sure in 2016, but I knew I was aiming for that in 2014. Wow, um, 2015, late 2014 after the election, uh, because it's a four-year cycle. That right. seat got right. picked in 2014. Late 2014, early 2015, I'm like, okay, next time, next time, let's probably going to do this. And then that became, all right, next time we're going to do this. And in 2017, it became, we're going to do it. And we're going to do it as I'm an alcoholic. This is me. I am not hiding anything. And I don't have to. And that's not the way our society should be. I guess it was summer of last year. I started following things because we have a mutual friend that also is a county commissioner. And I started seeing this person that was in the you know, running who was in recovery. And that was you, obviously, but I really had so much respect instantaneously to go, not against the grain, but to follow your heart and be out there with it when it's already stigmatized. But to get into local politics is even a, a higher mountain to climb. Because you're inviting it. <laughs> Yes. It's an invitation. It's because most of the people, they get caught or it gets discovered. I invited it. Right. <laughs> and and you got brass balls, man, to, to do something like that. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. As far as stigma is concerned, how did that process, how did it play out? And were there repercussions or reverberations of negative talk and anything like that throughout the process? I would say that... The biggest thing to me in terms of fighting stigma against me personally are that that still my that that record that those PIs in college and the DUI and again, which is out there. It, I didn't even think about yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's the, out there for people to see. The, that that's on my record. I mean that that's that's known. Um, that's just because those are printed on a piece of paper somewhere. You can know that someone else did all these other things, but if it's not on a piece of paper, it seems like no one cares. And that a lot of people said, ah, man, you've got this on your record. You've got that on your record. It's cost me jobs. It's cost me coaching jobs uh, in terms of opportunity. I truly didn't think about that till you just said this, but there's probably a lot of people who follow politics a lot more closely. Do you think that they go out there and and look you up and say, he's got this, this, and this, and then form a bit, an opinion? I don't know. I think it's possible. Um, I I mean, did your, I, you you mentioned your record. Did that come up, or was that was that just an internal that concern? Was, no, no. That was, there were friends of mine that said, man, that's a concern. That's a problem. Um, I didn't think about that that way. I, I, I guess I never got really sunk down in the stigma against myself. And I don't think anyone's ever actually phrased that question to me personally because I didn't want to get stuck down into it. Which is um, awesome. Because I, I, I knew this stuff was out there. But I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this. I uh, went for a coaching job that I thought I was going to get, that I thought I deserved. Um, and I didn't get it. And I was so angry because I thought I lost it because of my past. Um, and did I, did I not, I have no idea and I shouldn't have been angry and I probably better person got it, but I was so angry that I thought people were judging me 
because of what I had done, even though I had been years in a sobriety. And I was so devastated. And I just went into a, another one of those little isolated moments where uh, searching for information and quotes and people just talking about it. And I found this one that's like, if someone judges you by the sum of all your past mistakes, that person has no business being in your life. And after that, I'm like, okay, I am not the sum of my past mistakes. I am not everything bad I did when I was actively drinking. That is not me. And another thing that uh, you've talked about before and that Michael J. Fox talks about, um, what other people think is none of my damn business. So, and that's weird because I want to fight stigma. I want people not to think this way about people and addiction as a whole. But when it comes to me, go ahead and think what you want. I'm going to show you differently. It's hard to get to that point. But when I was in rehab, that's the first time that, that uh, someone phrased that question to me or that statement. What other people think is none of your damn business. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm thinking, wow. First, I was like, that's kind of a dick thing to say. When this, you know, I kind of was taken aback, but I'm thinking, man, that's, that's really true. Getting over that hump is part of early recovery. What do people think? How am I going to get myself back into society, so to speak? But when you can get when you can get to that point, it's a great feeling. And when I work with other folks that are coming in to recovery, coming into early sobriety, that's one thing that I stress is you've got to forgive yourself because shame and guilt sometimes are suffocating. But forgiving yourself and saying, hey, this is just me. And that's my aha moment came when a doctor told me, after I told him I spilled my five-hour story, he basically, my aha moment was, he basically said, dude, you may have been dealt a difficult hand, but this is you. And I have like a flashback in my mind. I've been this way since I was a kid. I've been a spaz. I've been all over the place. It doesn't matter if it was playing sports or watching movies. I wanted to do it 24 seven. And that's when I got to a point where I started celebrating the fact that this is me and it's okay. I just have to turn it into a positive thing and, and not worry about it. And that's what you did with this whole thing. I think it, I, I just think it's the, the, the coolest thing that you went through this. And I remember watching the videos of, you know, everybody giving their, you know, their little spiel down <laughs> at the courthouse. And, you know, that's the first thing you came out and said. I said it then. I was Absolutely. Gonna, just the way when I was introducing myself to girls, I was going to introduce myself there. I'm an alcoholic. If you care, that's fine, but you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. And stigma. And right when I saw that, I'm like, man, that is just brave, courageous, because with stigma, it is so strong that there had to be a portion of the population that wrote you off. You're absolutely certain. It's weird to hear you say that because you're absolutely right. No doubt. Never thought about it because I'm like, if those people are on board with me, great. If they're not, that's, that's their decision. But that's a healthy recovery right there. That's a recovery mindset that I wish everybody could get as a part of their life is to be able to think like that because that is uh, just huge. And, and, and we're emotional about stigma. We're emotional about addiction and, and alcoholism and substance use. And when we talk about ignorance, people's ignorance for the subject, we don't mean it negatively. It's just a lack of of education. And that's what we need people to do is to try and meet us halfway, educate yourself on what this is really about so that we can move forward together and help a population of people that is huge right now. I mean, think about all the people coming out of jail and everything, but that's a whole other subject I mean, to, to help us 
get back into society and be productive members and, and, and take away that mind block of these are terrible individuals who have made horrible decisions and we need to keep them, really put them in an incinerator and just well, and you talk about the, the one side of the spectrum there. What about the other with uh, just the people that are actually battling with admitting it? No one wants to it, like no one wants to admit it when there's this stigma attached to if I admit I'm an alcoholic, that I have a problem, I'm less. I'm somehow less now because I admit that. And you talked about uh, the other thing I'll add on top of that, lack of education is also there's just some traditional thinking, just the way that some people were raised thinking that moral failure associated with making bad choices, that that's what addiction is. It's it's not it's not science, it's not a disease, it's you screwed up and now you want to blame someone else for it. And that's the mentality that a lot of traditional blue collar people, whatever way you want to phrase that, um, they want to put it on you instead of saying it, it is what it is. And, and, and fighting that, educating people, telling them this, this is what it is, and no one's asking you to, to, to put the world on your back. It's just accept us for what we are and, and, and try to understand somewhat of what we're going through. In a couple of statements, what can we do to really attack the stigma and gracefully try and get people on our wavelength I, I know what I'm going to do personally is going to continue to be open and honest and talk and share and let people try and see into what I have experienced, what I continue to experience. And the more people, I'm not going to tell anybody, especially people in recovery, especially people in early recovery, to go be public, especially if that's not, no, don't do that. But the more that people can relate to the human being suffering from addiction, the more likely they are going to change their perspective on things and quit labeling people as less than because they suffer from addiction. Um, that spreading education, but when we say spreading education, I, I immediately think books and pamphlets and written word and videos. And, and that's so easy for some people just to write off talking to the people that have gone through this. I still think that the number one way to educate our youth is to bring those who have gone through successful recovery and to speak to them about how they fell into this trap and where it led from there and how they got out. That's the best, that's the best education you can ever give someone. It's just that, that education of experience. Right. And hope. Well, Tyler, I don't think you probably realize how many people you help just by doing what you do, telling your story, getting out in front of it. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. I look up to you and it means a lot that you came here and spent a few minutes with me and our listeners. So I appreciate it. And keep trailblazing like you do, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all that you do and all the people you reach out to. You really, what you do is you connect a lot of us together and that, that community better for having you and that's a community we need all right man thanks for listening i want to thank everyone that makes this show possible production by gwen sound artwork by neltner small batch and photography by john willis and lindsey steinhauser please subscribe rate and write a review visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com